Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroth, trusted authority in executive and transactional liability and president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Now a proud member of the Liberty Company Insurance Broker Network. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Christopher Parisi, partner of Karl Marx Advisors. Established in 1925, Karl Marx Advisors is a New York-based investment banking firm specializing in providing integrated end-to-end financial and operational advisory services with expertise in lower middle market mergers and acquisitions transactions. Chris, if I can call you Chris, great to have you. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, Patrick, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. Uh, You you mentioned in your opening about clean exits and and I'm excited to hear and and do my first clean exit because uh, none of them seem to be clean, but we, we always get there. Well, that's that's the goal always as as we get along from from all of that. Now, Chris, before we get into Karl Marx Advisors, which that's a, a unique name, obviously, but uh, in this day and age. But before we get into the, your firm, let's talk about you. What brought you to this point in your career? Sure. Um, and, and I am just going to go back to our name. You know, one of my partners likes to uh, open up every discussion with a, a prospect or a client. And he says, you know, we're Karl Marx advisors, capitalists since 1925. Perfect. So. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. We yeah, it, that. It, it, it is a unique name, but we, we spell it a little bit differently. Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, thanks for the introduction. And, uh, you know, as far as what got me to this point in my career, uh, you know, I'll back up to, to the very beginning. And, you know, I was actually an accounting major. Um mm-hmm in college, a uh, small little uh, Catholic college in Pennsylvania called University of Scranton. And I, I started out as an accounting major because when I was in high school, people said, you know, well, you're, you're, you're interested in business, you're good at math, you should be an accountant. Everybody and, needs one. And everybody, and everybody needs one. Uh, and, and that was fine and well. Uh, and I started my career at Ernst & Young. Okay. As auditor, and uh, what what I quickly figured out is that I I, I was okay in math. Uh, I did like business, but I was a uh, a, a terrible auditor. Okay, so, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> uh, so I, I wasn't much of an accountant, but uh, it did help me uh, define kind of what I was interested in and. I was working as a, an accountant on M&A transactions, so I got to uh, you know observe the the bankers, the lawyers, the principals, and you know when I went to college, I probably didn't know what investment banking was, mm-hmm. uh, but that that world you know first introduced me to to what it was, and uh, I certainly you know loved what I saw and and wanted to move to the transaction side, uh, so. You know, eventually that's what I did. I, I do use more accounting now than I probably ever did as an accountant. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, that's, you know, almost 30 years later, here we are. So that's how I got to this point. Yeah, I, I consider it's probably the most uh, exciting of business events is, is mergers and acquisitions. Just that, that whole transaction is not sales, you know, or other things. It's, it's kind of 
you know, one of those situations where because it arises with a liquidity event for somebody and getting to the next level, anything you can do to be part of that to facilitate it, it's, just, it's very exciting. It's, it, it's life-changing, uh, one would argue. Yeah, and, you know, it, it, it's a good segue into kind of how I got here um, because earlier in my career, uh, I, I worked at Jeffries. Mm, yeah. And, great middle market bank and and you kind of get to straddle you know some some smaller public deals with some larger you know private transactions and when i thought about all those deals that i worked on you know the ones i really liked the most were you know the private transactions when maybe you were working for a founder yeah uh rather than you know working for a, a board of directors of a public company so i started to you know really key in on, okay, I like seeing that satis- the satisfaction yeah. of that one individual or that one family. Yeah. To your point that you're, you're, you're working with a, an actual person, an actual history of blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. And in some small way, I get to help, help them realize a, a lifetime's worth of work. You know, we'll talk about it. you. You do more than help. Uh, there, there's quite a bit that you guys are involved in, but let's segue over to, to Karl Marx advisors. Okay, dedicated toward the lower middle market. Let's talk about it because I mean it's got a storied past because it's been around before private equity was around, and sure. so they are among the pioneers going into that. So talk about the transition, and you know, you don't have to go back to 1925, but let's. Give us the, the pathway for Karl Marx and, you know, how they settle on working with lower middle market. Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, it, it's a great history, obviously, that that we have. Um, and, you know, we, we still operate as a true merchant bank. Mm. Uh, so, you know, where I sit, I head up our M&A group, which is one of three groups that we do in the advisory practice. We also have uh, a special situations group that does transactional work. And then we also actually have an operations, almost consulting-like group mm. that goes in as a you know, chief restructuring officer uh, for companies that are looking to you know, do a turnaround or, or some type of restructuring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is, you know, that, that's the Karl Marx advisors that still sits within the larger Karl Marx platform. And we do... Uh, you know, we've got a couple of different, you know, principal funds. So, you know, we, we, we've got a lot of different tentacles into a lot of different areas in corporate finance. And because we're still small, I mean, the whole firm is probably, you know, less than a hundred people still. Oh. Uh, there's a good interaction between the principal side, the advisory side, and it, it really creates a, a good holistic view for us as advisors because we can, walk down the hall and, and talk to the principal group and, and see what they're seeing on you know, the principal side or the, you know, the fundraising side. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've operated like that for decades. We still operate like that. Uh, and we continue to, to, to stick to our niche. Well, and, and your niche, when you talk about lower middle market, you know, is that, I know you have that preference because of your personal experience being there around owners and founders. Corporately, is that just a conscious decision to stay, you know, there? Because a lot of organizations, they just start getting bigger and bigger and bigger as success is built. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, we've certainly 
taking a look around at, you know, who we are, what we like to do mm-hmm. um, and where we think we can provide the most value. And each time we do that, it does come back to sticking to that lower middle market. Uh, you know, we are, well, while we've got a lot of guys like me who, who have, you know, sort of traditional Wall Street backgrounds, we've got a lot of operators. We've got mm-hmm. people who have run their own businesses, sold their own businesses. We've got, you know, some pretty, good technical people that can get into some of those lower middle market businesses and add more value than just the transaction uh, that they could be, really be helpful in, you know, rolling up their sleeves and uh, doing some of the dirty work that, uh, you know, frankly is required in, in lower middle market uh, deals. And, uh, you know, we, we just tend to have people who are good at that um, and who are unafraid to, uh, to spend time doing it. So, you know, every time, there is that temptation to, as you said, you know, grow bigger or, or go up market. Uh, we, we, we do come back to, you know, this, this is where we are especially good. Yeah, I, I think that's essential because, first of all, the lower middle market, I, I like it as, as an area just because it's a lot larger. So there's, there's more opportunity out there for everybody. But you guys are filling a need because a lot of owners and founders, when they want to go ahead and they get to that inflection point where they're, you know, they're too big to be small, but they're too small to be enterprise. You know, and if they want to get out there and move to that next level, you know, if they don't have the experience and they don't know who, who to reach out to, they're going to default to an institution or they'll default to possibly strategic. And, you know, they're, they're good and bad in all those, but, you know, a lot of times, they're not getting the attention and the service they deserve. Now they are getting the, the fee charges that, that, you know, come with that. But I think that, you know, by not knowing about organizations like Karl Marx advisors, they're going to go elsewhere. And that's why I really wanted to make a point of highlighting, you know, not only that you guys are capable, but this is where you want to be. And, you know, when you get to a certain point, don't you want to work with somebody who wants to work with you? Yeah. Well, you know, I tell my team all the time that, Life is too short to be working with people who you don't want to be around. So uh, whether it's our employees or our clients, not only do we want to work with them, but we want to spend time with them. Yeah, uh, yep. so it's, I, uh, I agree. Well, I, I mean, I like to say when you compare us with the national uh, big, big publicly traded companies out there, I mean, I look at it like, you know, somebody's got to insure Disneyland. I'm glad it's not me. You know, right. get that out there. We'll 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 deal with the the other things out there. Now, uh, Chris, tell us what does Karl Marx bring to the table for the lower middle market? You mentioned you've got operators, you've got experience. What are some of the things tangibly that you guys are bringing? Yeah, I think probably the 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 best thing that we can offer um, our clients, and you know, just just to put a, a finer point on it, mm-hmm. most of our clients are family owned businesses. They're private partnerships, they're entrepreneurs, you know, in almost every case, they're pre-institutional, meaning that mm-hmm. they're not backed by a private equity firm. They probably don't have a, a large credit facility with a, a big, you know, money center type bank. You know, th- these are more bootstrapped type companies. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes they're doing accounting, you know, today it's on the accrual basis, tomorrow it's on the cash basis. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they, all of our clients, they're focused on cash. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and when but when you go out to the market, you know, all that's got to be you know tidied up and put a bow on it. 
So I think we're, what we are especially good at is, first of all, explaining what that process is going to look like, some of the, the, the upfront work that's got to be done. Um, and then, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, we'll handhold them through that process. We'll roll up our sleeves, you know, get down with our clients and really dig out that information. So sometimes when we get engaged, sure, we'd like to be in the market six weeks after we're engaged, but sometimes we realize it might take three months to get to market because we've got to do a lot of the legwork to, to get these guys in shape for, for sale. So I think that, you know, there's a bedside manner that comes with that. There's patience uh, and there's a, a willingness to, to do that work, you know, and, and, but we're not getting paid any differently than any, any other investment bank. Mm-hmm. So we're not getting paid hourly. We're, you know, we're, we're not getting paid monthly. Uh, we're still almost entirely contingent fee based. Uh, so I think it's, it's that willingness, it's that, you know, handholding that I, you know, probably some other investment banks are, are, uh, you know, are not willing to, to do. Yeah. And that's, that's a great approach that you have also is, you, you know, you're almost like part therapist, part counselor, as well as, well, we got to clean this up. Do you have any examples of any kind of aha moments with your clients where you said, well, we're going to do this. And they just look at you and say, you could do that? Really? And it really had a big impact on, on, on their valuation. Sure. So a lot of our clients, they are extraordinarily good at what they do. Mm-hmm. They understand exactly, you know, how important they are to their own customers, but they don't always understand how much value that translates in the, into the capital markets yeah. or into the M&A environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had a client last year who probably thought they were worth $20 million. You know, that sounds like a good number to them. And we went in there and said, you know, we looked at, at, you know, kind of where they, where their position in the market was, who their customers were, the types of margins they had, uh, the growth rate. And we said, you know, we think your business is worth about $50 million. And uh, that was an aha moment. That's an aha moment. Wow. And, you know, it's one of those moments where, you know, I actually, I think it was over Zoom. (laughs) It's over Zoom, right? They're like, did you say 15 million? I said, no, I, five, (laughs) zero. And, you know, it's, so, yeah. And one, on one hand, it's an aha moment. You know, on the other hand, they're like, are are you sure? Yeah. You know, I said, you know. Wow. We've done this a long time. We're sure. Uh, and you know, then, then you walk them through it and you help them understand why we think that. And, but they hired us and allowed us to bring them to market. And sure enough, we sold them for over $50 million. Wow. And again, so, you know, we'll disclaim it ahead of time. Past performance is not going to predict right. behavior at all. So we're not going to strap you to that, but that, I mean, that's the value you bring where, I mean, that's, that's in, in any other world other than California and New York. Okay. 20 million is a lot of money, but right. when you're bringing something to that next level, I mean, that's ge- that's multi-generational impact. And oh. that, it's just, that's just fantastic. And it's, the things that you guys can bring because you know in, in my opinion just myself i'm not as creative as as those entrepreneurs to come up with that but anything i can do to help them get get over the line and get that 
you know, after they've created tremendous value when nothing was there before. I think, I think that's just a fantastic gig. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and again, I think, you know, it is, we, we get a lot of, um, you know, personal satisfaction from it. And, and, and I do remind uh, my team all the time that, you know, we're not just chasing a number. You're these people that barely know us. Yeah. For some reason, they've entrusted us with their entire life's work, possibly two or three generations worth of work. And uh, if that doesn't give you incentive every day to go out and fight like hell for them, yeah, uh, you probably need to check your pulse because, yeah. you know, when, when that day comes, when they get that money and, you know, our clients are not, they're not chasing money for the material side of it. Yeah. Uh, they want the recognition, the validation, and then they want to do something special with the money, whether it's, you know, philanthropy or, uh, you know, other things that they can do in their community or with their families. So, you know, these are, these are good salt of the earth people who are, um, it just feels really good when, yeah. like I said, we, we can help in a small way, you know, help them realize what, what they've been working for. Well, Chris, tell me, give us an idea. What's, what's the profile of your ideal client? Who are you looking for? So we work across all different industries, um, but given, you know, what I just said, kind of, you know, the family owned private partnerships, entrepreneurs, uh, they tend to be a lot in both consumer and industrial spaces. Okay. So, you know, we're not working with a lot of companies that are three or five years in into their existence. We're more working with companies that are, you know, 20, 30, 40 years into okay. their existence. Uh, I've got a client right now who's uh, 53 years in, um, you know, multi-generational uh, private partnership. So, you know, that's, you know, and, and again, because they go back a ways, you know, we do do technology deals, but they tend to be more consumer, more industrial, you know, business services, certainly. But they, you know, the, the common thread uh, outside of industry is you know that ownership structure, uh, you know, the capital structure. We, you know, when I sell a business for fifty million dollars, it's likely going to have fifty million dollars of equity, or you know, <laughs> it might have two million dollars of debt and forty-eight million dollars of equity. You know, yeah, they, yeah. These are not highly levered, you know, risky type businesses. Wow. These are just good, stable businesses, important to their customers. Uh, you know, growing at a good rate. You know, and you know, I'm sure you see it as well. Clients like ours, uh, their customers are asking them to, to do more things for them. Mm-hmm. So they get to this point of, you know, we've got to get bigger to just satisfy our existing customers. Mm-hmm. And then they have that moment of, okay, maybe I need a partner to get me to the next level. Or maybe I don't want to be, you know, the bank for my own company anymore. And maybe it's time for for somebody else, whether it's a, a private equity firm or a strategic, to, uh, to bankroll this and take it from a five, a $50 million company to a $500 million company. Gotcha. gotcha. Well, then I, I'd say you're, you're here to serve legacy companies or companies with a legacy, but a, but a good legacy. When we think about it in Silicon Valley, <clears throat> legacy systems are not positive. Okay. But this, this is uh you're serving legacy. So that's something are, what percentage are your clients where they're looking for the exit or they're just looking for transition they want to stay on? So I would say that a, Probably about eighty percent of the time, they're looking to continue in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
a lot of our deals, you know, we call them sales or exits, but they're really majority recapitalizations. Mm-hmm. They're going to sell 80% of their equity and roll over yeah. 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then they're going to take that 20% and, you know, kind of grow with the, yeah. the next owner. Get that uh, second bite. Second bite of the apple. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, and, and, and in a lot of the cases, it is a family owned business. There's, you know, there are multiple generations. So, you know, maybe the, you know, the patriarch or the matriarch is looking for the exit, but the next generation is, is looking to gain some more equity mm-hmm. and really take the reins, grow to the next level and then have their own exit. Uh, so I would say about 80% of the time, uh, there, there's some type of continuation. Okay. All right. And now when we talk about exits and we talk about just the growth of mergers and acquisitions in general, just in terms of size, scope, number of transactions and so forth, you can't turn away from or you can't ignore a, a key catalyst to that. And that is having insurance on these transactions, because when you can lower the risk to both sides of the deal, it facilitates deals happening Faster, smoother, cheaper, all that wonderful stuff. And one of the biggest products out there is is reps and warranties insurance that protects both the buyers and the sellers and is being is almost ubiquitous in private equity. But you know, don't take my word for it on on its effectiveness. Chris, good, bad, or indifferent. What's been your experience with rep and warranty insurance? All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take the long road to answer this question for you. Take all the time you want. So I've been doing this work for about 25 years, and there's probably not a single biggest difference in how deals are structured uh, than the introduction of rep and warranty insurance over that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when when we first did deals, you know, when I was first doing deals 25 years ago, you know, a, a large part of the definitive contract, a large part of the negotiation were all the caps and baskets and everything else that went along with negotiating some of the exposure in uh, in, in the reps and warranties section. And you could have a 50-page you know, definitive agreement and you'd spend a week negotiating, you know, 40 pages of it, mm-hmm. and then you'd spend another six weeks negotiating reps and warranties. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, and, and it, it, it brought deals to the to the brink. Mm-hmm. Um, some deals would fail because of it. And, and then, you know, the reps and warranty insurance concept was introduced, you know, probably, I mean, really in earnest, I would say, you know, 10 to 12 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a game changer because, you know, in, in, in almost one fell swoop, you, you took this highly contentious issue that you know you knew you were going to bump up against you kind of dread Mm. the conversation every time and you almost completely eliminated it Uh, and in a lot of transactions it is completely eliminated you know so you said you went from negotiating all these points to hey who's going to pay for this is it going to be a 50 50 split buyer are you going to pay for it um but it's it's a conversation that you know now it lasts a couple hours sometimes so from from my standpoint you know, when trying to get through a contract, trying to get that agreement in place, removing the biggest impediment through the, the rep and warranty insurance uh, concept, like I said, it, it's been the single biggest thing that's allowed transactions to move more uh, swiftly. And it gives my clients, the sell side clients, 
the ultimate peace of mind. You know, I, yeah. I would always tell my clients that when you're negotiating your, your definitive agreement, you know, when that transaction closes, you want it to stay closed. Yes. That is your biggest concern post deals. That, that, that transaction stays closed. And uh, with rep and warranty insurance, it, uh, it almost guarantees that it always does. Yeah, it's been it, it's been a, a great tool. What the the newest development is, I'm very proud of. And, I'm, and you know, when you do insurance, we're always conscious that there's a little skeptic skepticism with a product where you buy this policy and then it's well, are they actually going to pay a claim? And unfortunately, there are instances in personal insurance and auto insurance and things where that can get a little fuzzy. Not so in rep and warranty. They they've really honored the promises they've kept. And I'm very proud of, of, of their performance that way. What's been great now is there's a development, and this is why you know we're doing a lot of time with sell-side representatives, uh, is that there's a new product out there for smaller deals. These are sub $30 million enterprise deals that it would be a sell-side policy. And so some of the sometimes these deals are just too small to make where rep and warranty makes sense because the cost of diligence is high, the premiums are a bit higher. They're definitely worth, you know, worth the value that they give. But when you've got an add-on or other small transaction, it may not meet the the criteria. Sometimes it just is too small and underwriters aren't going to uh, agree to insure it for any money on the rep and warranty side. There's a new sell side uh, program out there and it's, it's less expensive. There's no underwriting fee. There's no huge underwriting process, which accelerates things. And it's really assisting, you know, situations where sellers really want to pay for it. They want the protection, but the buyer's not going to get the buy side policy. And so they're left with nothing. And so yeah. we're very proud of, of that uh, development out there. And it's, again, for companies that are enterprise value, $30 million and under, and we can insure quite a bit of those and at, at a significant discount. And so I'm very proud to, to talk about that. Um, That's great. Chris, as, as we're going forward, I really appreciate the comments you had on, on reps and warranties. As we're going forward now, we're already just past halfway point in the year. And it's it's blinked and it's going right by. But it's the second quarter has been much, much better than the first. Yeah. What do you see? What trends do you see going forward into 2023? I mean, either on Karl Marx advisor's side or just M&A in general? Yeah, so I think, you know, on M&A in general, in the private transaction side, not too different than public markets, right? The, the, the worst scenario is uncertainty. And, you know, we're, we're, we're coming through, we're still in a period of uncertainty. Uh, but each day that goes by, uh, we are becoming a little bit more certain, right? We see, you know, things are becoming a little bit clearer to where the economy uh, is headed and how that'll affect deals. So, you know, for instance, I, I you know, with, with some of my clients, we're identifying that the, some of the slowness uh, is attributed to an inventory glut. You know, so we can see that there's a little bit too much inventory in the system. So, is there some softening of demand at the consumer level? There is, but it's being exaggerated, I think, at the manufacturing level because mm. the the softening demand is still chewing through, uh, you know, heightened inventory levels. Okay. But now that we're understanding that's what's going on, at least we can say, okay, 
you know, demand is softening, but it's not falling off a cliff. Yeah, good. Yeah. But what's falling off a cliff or had been falling off a cliff a little bit is the, you know, the new order books because, you know, we're working inventory through the system. But that doesn't last that long, mm-hmm. right? So we, we can say, okay, we might be in a six-month period from here, you know, through the end of the year where that's going to have to get, you know, reconciled. But then that gives us a lot of confidence uh, for what 23 will look like. Okay. So we're seeing the softness, but we're not seeing the, you know, the apocalypse. Okay. And, you know, so as we're beginning to understand what's driving it, buyers are getting a little bit more certain of what it means for them and, and their hold period post-transaction. Uh, so we're seeing people get a little bit more optimistic now, even as, you know, inflation numbers are still very high and credit rates are, you know, are still rising. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not the complete unknown that it was even, you know, a month ago. That's that's very encouraging. Also, because it, you're you're taking a level, you're looking deeper at these situations, but, you know, and you're just ruling out. Okay, this is a real systemic, you know, critical danger in the in, in the macro that's going to affect us. No, there's just micro, you know, incidents here, incidents there. They're unique to each situation. So I think, you know, as as we look for, I mean, I just keep thinking, you know, everything ends. I mean. Right. Challenging times, no matter what, it's going to end. Winning streaks, they end too. So, as as we're going forward, I think it, it's more encouraging that you know the sky hasn't fallen. And I I, I appreciate your approach on that because you um, you're looking under the under the under the uh, surface and and getting getting to the root of light a lot of these things. And that's you know very very positive. Now, now ho- hopefully. You and I are sharing an eggnog in a few months, and we're saying, "Yeah, we, we were right." Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you know, that in, in between more deals coming through, which I think is is another thing that's not going to slow down in the lower middle market anytime soon. So, okay. I with, with that, I think uh, we're we're going to have a lot of conversations that way. Now, Chris Parisi from Karl Marx Advisors, how can our audience members find you? Uh, well, the easiest way to find me is uh, is via email. Uh, so they can call me up. I mean, they can uh, email me at uh, C-P-A-R-I-S-I at carlmarks.com. And that's uh, C-A-R-L-M-A-R-K-S. Uh, thank you, yes. Patrick, for the, uh, for, for the qualification there. We yes. got to make sure we got that on. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if, if you use a K and an X, you're probably not going to find me. Yeah. Um, or, you know, certainly give me a call at the office, uh, 212-909-8405. So either those or, or you can go to our website, carlmarksadvisors.com. Uh, and and yeah, sure. any of those ways, you know, I'll, I'll be sure to get back in touch. Yeah, it is wonderful with your website, too, which is excellent is, you know, 10 years ago. Good luck finding people, you know, on a company website at all. Now it's all intuitive. You can find them, contact and everything. And I think that very user friendly. You do not want to be the best kept secret in investment banking. I know. We, we, no. You know. We're, we're not quite on TikTok yet, but you know we're we've got we've got a decent web presence. Yeah, I think I think this is the extent of my social media right now. We, <laughs> we will see. Chris Parisi from Call Marks Advisors, thanks, Abby. It's a pleasure talking to you, and and I really appreciate it. Yeah, Patrick, thank you for having me, and uh, welcome. Uh, you know that that future discussion, uh, but certainly really appreciate the the uh, the opportunity to be, be on your show here. 